Let's turn to um, our, our passage of Scripture. David Yim is going to come, and he's going to read Scripture for us, a little different than what's in the, the program for today. Um, but I, I invite you to stand, and let's read Titus chapter 1, verses 15 through, or 5 through 16. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town I directed you. If anyone is above a reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting the whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they need not deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Amen. Thank you. Lord, w- would you allow us today as we um, come to the subject of eldership and the qualifications for eldership to, um, Lord, to be humble before you, to allow your word to be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. And Lord, you give us clarity and understanding, Lord, of, of the importance of uh, what we are doing today. Lord, that you want to feed us even with something that might seem um, a little distant from us. So, Lord, help us. And, Lord, I ask that I would simply be your messenger. And, Lord, I ask for strength uh, to be clear and to give proper um, and accurate, Lord, perspective as to what you desire for the leadership in in your church. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. just to remind you where we are uh, in this series, we typically, as you know, go through a book of the Bible as we are preparing for uh, bringing prospective elders into the place of eldership. Uh, we wanted to go through a, a series here to make sure that we are teaching and we're establishing what eldership looks like and what it doesn't look like because there's a lot of confusion in the church, the church in America, on this particular subject. And so, um, if you're visiting with us today, um, or if you haven't been here for a few weeks, I uh, just want you to be aware of why we're doing what we're doing. And quite frankly, we're coming to a passage and, and to a topic that you might, might seem, again, a little academic, or it's like, you know, I really want to be you know, encouraged by God. Um, and, you know, I want the you know, Word of God just to kind of come and, and wow you. And this morning, the way the Word of God wows you is when you see the beauty of God's church and the responsibility that God has placed on the church to raise up elders to lead that church in a way that would honor God. That is critically important. And it's important to God, and therefore it, it should be important to God's church. 
And um, one of the problems, though, for me as I come to this kind of topic is that the conversation we're having here um, is about me. It's about anyone who would be in a position of eldership. And so it's a little bit awkward, okay? It's like if I ask one of you ladies, I want you to you know, teach on Proverbs 31 and give lots of illustrations from your life. Um, it would be difficult, all right? For, so for any, any person to stand up here and talk about qualifications for this, it's, it's a very humbling experience. And um, I've had to ask myself a lot of questions this week because one of those things about pastors and preaching is oftentimes the subject matter that you're preaching on is the way in which God wants to mold and shape you that week. Um, so as you're looking at some of the qualifications, like, oh, man, I struggle with that one this week. Oh, wow, you know, and God is just reminding me of my dependence on him in the context of leadership. And so um, we, we want to we move into this discussion here and this time and this subject with a sensitivity that some people can come to this with, with almost a, um, uh, a, a critical attitude looking to find faults. Because when you have a list of qualifications, what are you trying to determine? Whether someone qualifies or not. So you can kind of have a critical attitude. Uh, the, the, the opposite, though, I think is important here, just as much as being, you know, being honest about uh, whether someone qualifies or not. And, and that is that, you know, is there growth? And have you seen growth in those areas? And, and what is it that you're doing to help and to encourage that growth? And so there can be a positive side to this, too. And I just encourage you, uh, allow this to be an opportunity for us as a church to, to, to kind of marinate in these truths so that we can understand what it is that God is calling us as a church to have as our leadership. Now, today is Reformation Sunday, and we really have not, you know, done a lot with that topic. And I kind of left some things here for the beginning of our time together um, in the Word, because it does all fit. And oftentimes, on Reformation Sunday, we'll spend time, you know, thinking about just the, the battles that were fought and the men and women who died fighting uh, to defend the truth of the revealed Word. I mean, and, and the fact that the Roman Catholic Church did not like Martin Luther and his 95 Theses and all those that supported what he was doing and the birth and of the Reformation, it was not something that was popular among the Catholic Church, but it was part of what God was doing in the lives of people who were opening up the Word of God and reading what it actually said and coming to conclusions about the church that they saw. And as a result of that, we usually think of the five solas, and we'll just highlight them today as a means of introduction for our time in the word here. Uh, the five solos, sola scriptura, that scripture alone is the standard as opposed to scripture, tradition, the authority of the church. It is the word of God that is the basis of our understanding of how we live and choices that we make. Sola scriptura, sola de gloria, for the glory of God alone. Everything that we do should be for the glory of God. The next one would be uh, solo Christo, by Christ's work alone we are saved. It is his work alone, not his works plus anything. And that was very significant because in the Catholic context, that was not necessarily true. It was more of a works process, infusion of grace along the way, hoping that you do enough so that you can get to where you need to. And as I mentioned, as we began our time today, this, this solo uh, Christus is, is this idea um, that at that moment of salvation, that salvation is based not upon anything that you have done, but everything that Jesus Christ has done, okay, in Christ alone. 
Sola gratia, we're saved by grace alone. Again, not, not by grace plus works, but grace alone. And sola fide was justification alone. Justification by faith alone. And that was Martin Luther's kind of rallying cry or, or wake-up moment when he was studying that particular issue. Now, I bring those five up just to remind us that these are the five solas that, that are really things that we embrace fully, um, but are the outgrowth and the fruit of the Reformation. But those are not the only things that came by virtue of the Reformation. And when we began our time talking about church government and church structure, we talked about different organizations of the church and the Episcopal um, structure Yes, it was part of the Episcopalian church, but it was also part of the Catholic structure at that time was this, this, this hierarchical um, mechanism that was in place for the assembling and the organization of the church. But with the Reformation, there was that structure that was already there, but there was a change in focus. And you don't see the immediate change taking place because what happened was the Reformation took place and the structures that were there were just replaced with reformed thinking people, reformed thinking bishops, and so on. And then from there, they began to rethink, what does the church actually look like? Why? Because they're not just basing it on the tradition of the church. They're basing it on what the Word of God says. And so what happened was there was this, this return now to local congregations establishing and calling elders as their overseers. Listen to what... Martin Luther says, no bishop should institute anyone without the election, will, and call of the congregation. Rather, he should confirm the one whom the congregation chose and called. So there was this move from a top-down establishment of those who were leading in the church to a church that is recognizing, raising, and affirming those who are in leadership. Now, friends, that was a radical change. The church was functioning completely different for, for hundreds of years with this hierarchical top-down standard. And now this Reformation comes and this, this focus is now on these local church. In the Catholic hierarchy, there was no local church voice. You got who you got. But in the Reformation, there was this emphasis now on what are the qualifications? What is the character of this man of God? Just study a little bit of church history, you'll find out that there was a season in church history when some of the worst sinners in the context of a community were the clergy because they had the power over the people because they could pronounce them, you know, that you, you are anathema, you are not supportive of the church, and they had the power to say that, and people were totally, you know, under the, the, the weight of the church. But with the Reformation, there became this, 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 this reminder and this renewal of what does the Word of God say and the purity and the, the severity and the significance of those leadership standards. And so the Reformers looked to the Word of God, not to church and tradition. And as they did so, they recaptured God's intention to establish elders to serve as pastors, overseers, um, and elders in the church. So we celebrate Reformation Sunday, but we can also say that the Reformation sparked a change in thinking and practice regarding this whole subject of eldership and establishing eldership in the church. It was in seed form, but it eventually grew um, to be the standard for uh, many in the greater spectrum of Protestantism. Okay? So last week we looked at 
the responsibilities of the elders and the shepherds. And we identified them as these six things, to know the sheep, to feed the sheep, to guide the sheep, to comfort the sheep, to guard the sheep, and to intercede for the sheep. Uh, Try to capture those responsibilities under those six headings. Today, we want to turn our attention to the qualifications uh, of the elder shepherd. And we have two passages that really lay it out very clearly for us. Uh, We had one passage that was just read by David, and that was uh, in Titus. In particular, verses 6 through 9 list out those qualifications. But I wanted him to read through verse 16 because there's reasons listed in Titus as to why those qualifications are important. Okay? Evidence there of false teachers and false teaching. Now I would like for us to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we're going to read verses 1 through 7 to capture the other passage of scripture that talks more about these qualifications. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 beginning at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy, Paul says. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now the question is this. Begin with this question. Why do men seek the office of overseer? Why do men seek the office of elder, shepherd? These words are used interchangeably to talk about the same office. Well, some seek the office out of wrong motives. If you remember last week, we talked about the hireling, right? The person is looking for the benefit of of money and power and prestige and comfort. Their, Their focus and their reason is a selfish reason. But others seek the office out of a God centered motive because they care about the church because they care about the gospel and they care about the sheep that are in that church because they care about the honor of God's name and they care about God's will to be done so there can be different motives as to why someone would want to take on this responsibility now listen again to what happens to the church and the sheep if there are not any godly leaders present we're told that they will be overtaken by rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers. This is one of the reasons why Paul says to Titus and Paul says to Timothy to establish these elders. Because there will be rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers. Not only that, the church will be upset and families torn apart if there is no one there to stand and to speak the truth, there to care for the flock. So the health and the well-being of the church is at stake. And God calls specific men to step in to that gap and to take up the mantle of being an intimate leader, a faithful feeder, a trustworthy guide, a gentle comforter, courageous guardian, and an eager uh, intercessory prayer. Um, So let's move on to the next question. How does the church go about determining who should serve as an elder or a shepherd? 
Well, let's start off with some bad examples, okay? And I just sat down and thought, how can I capture these bad examples from my own experience? These are things that I have seen in my experience serving as a pastor when people are considered for church leadership, all right? This is how sometimes it goes. We're looking for someone, and how do, what's the criteria? How will we determine they're going to be there, right? There is, first of all, Mr. Popular, right? Mr. Popular is the one who is kind of presented as the person. Why? Because he's likable. People like him. He's funny. He gets along with people. Maybe he, you know, maybe he does a lot for the people in, in the church. But he is Mr. Popular. He's jovial. He's friendly. He's well-liked. There's another one, though. I'm going to call him Mr. Senator. I call him Mr. Senator because he is being presented by people in the church because he represents a certain segment of that congregation. So, for example, and in my experience, I've, I've seen this happen, he represents the seniors in the church. And the seniors really want someone that will lobby for them, that the drums will be thrown out and replaced by an organ. Just so you know, I don't know where the organ would fit, okay? Just if you're ever wondering, all right? Um, th th this person is, is going to change um, the, the music that we have in between our, our break there from that, that hippie music to Gaither music, okay? And, and they're saying, through this man, we're going to accomplish these things that we want. Um, we're going to make sure that at all potlucks, seniors get to go first, okay? And, and they're going to make sure that the pastor stops talking about sin because we've been in this church for 30 years. Doesn't he know we know about sin? We just want happy preaching so that we can go out and have our, you know, restaurant time together, right? I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm going over the top with my illustration. My point is that there can be a lobby approach to the person that is being held up as we want this person to be our leader. You understand that? And the, the criteria is not a biblical criteria. It is a, we want a representative. So I'll call him Mr. Senator. Then there is Mr. Good Old Boy, all right? And Mr. Good Old Boy is more someone that is looked at from the perspective of who is already serving as leaders in the church, and we think that so-and-so is a good old boy. He can come on. He's one of us. He's not going to rock the boat. We're going to continue doing the things that we want to do. And again, the biblical criteria is not there undergirding this person. It is simply we want this person to come and to serve and to be on this leadership team or board, and they're not going to really affect any change. They're just going to come and support and be a part of it. All right, Mr. Good Old Boy. All right, then there's Mr. Sharp Businessman. Ah, Mr. Sharp Businessman has been very, very successful in business. And of course, if he's been very successful in business, certainly if he were in leadership in the church, then our church would be what? Successful. So we need more Mr. Sharp Businessmen to serve in leadership because the goal is what? That our church is successful. All right, whatever that would mean. And so the idea is that his presence would somehow, um, you know, allow that to happen. This morning, I thought of another one, okay? Um, so I don't know if it was a divine thing, but it was just reflecting again. I call him Mr. Intimidating Bible Thumper. Have you guys ever met Mr. Intimidating Bible Thumper? I really don't think we have him in our church, okay? So... But I have met Mr. Intimidating Bible Thumper, and he, he'll let you know how things should be and how things should be run and that the Bible says this and the Bible says that and, and almost kind of 
creating his own way into leadership. But you want to be very, very careful because Mr. Bible Thumpers typically are not team players. They're typically simply wanting to do their own thing. And they love positions of leadership and authority because it gives them freedom to do and say what they want and feel like they have authority to do it now. Okay? Now, there's probably others that we can do. And I, and I go through this list to say, listen, there are wrong characteristic qualities that many people look for when it comes to church leadership, right? This is, this is not American democracy. And we must be careful that we don't allow American democracy to, to come in and to change how we approach this. As we look at Scripture, there are three criteria that must be met for a candidate to be considered as an elder, all right? Three criteria. First of all, and we're gonna, this is the outline basically of today, there, there is going to be the person's calling, and there's going to be a need for that person to consider their calling, and that calling is going to need to be affirmed by those who are in spiritual leadership already. Then there's going to be an assessment of that person's character, which is the big part of what we typically think of the qualifications. And then the final thing is, his confirmation. In other words, there is a church family that confirms or affirms that that person meets that criteria and they have experienced it, they have seen it. Okay? So, um, our purpose then today is to work our way through this criteria here. And I hope this, this will be helpful for our understanding and for our edification and for our ability to move on in this process of looking at elders for Gateway Bible Church. Now, I remember when I began to consider God's call on my life. Believe it or not, I was in the 11th grade. And I remember God was, was working in me, and I remember that there was this, this desire, and there was this kind of hunger, and there was this, this question about, you know, does, is God wanting me to, to kind of move in a path of, of, of ministry and serving him in, in kind of a pastoral context? And and I had to wrestle with, is that, am I just enamored by a particular preacher? Or is there something in me that's going on? And um, it, was, it was hard because I couldn't imagine, why, you know, how could I even be in that kind of context? And yet, God continued to work on me. And by the time I was in college, it was very, very clear to me that that's what he had called me to do. However, um, I shared that with my father before I went into college. I said, Dad, I said, I really believe God's calling me into ministry. And my dad said, well, when you go to college... I went to a Christian college. He said, he says, I want you to take a major that is a secular major. And so I ended up taking accounting. And I listened to my dad's wisdom. And, and uh, that whole year, um, I, I worked hard, but there was still a struggle in me. I just kind of felt like, you know, God, accounting isn't where God wants me to be. I learned a lot. Um, I did okay with accounting. But that following summer, I went back to my dad. I said, Dad, listen, I, for a year I've been in this I've been pursuing, you know, this, 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 uh, this agenda as far as accounting is concerned. But again, I just really believe that God is calling me into, uh, into ministry, in particular into the pastoral ministry. And um, just that year, I just struggled and just felt lost with my direction in life. And, and then I, I said, you know, I'm going to talk with my dad. And I did. And I shared all this with him. And, and he said, Rod, he says, he says I, I, I recognize what God is doing in you. I see that in you. But I wanted to make sure. And part of the reason he wanted to make sure is because you have to understand, in, in, in a Christian college context, if you, can't, you know, if you can't do math and you can't do, you know, you can't do you know, physics or you, you can't do biology or whatever it might be, you know, I guess, well, I, I guess I'll go into ministry, right? 
And um, it's just kind of like one of those default things. And my dad was concerned that I wasn't just going down that path because other people were telling me to, that it was something that God was actually doing in my heart, okay? And I look back and say, God, God used my dad to, 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 um, to affirm and to solidify his calling in my life. And then my dad then in turn said, now I'm fully behind you. Go back, change your major. And what I ended up doing was my, my minor ended up being all business and all those accounting credits and stuff went in there. And it was a great major to have that, pastoral studies and business minor. Just as, as a college student, it was just a wonderful um, kind of combination. But that, that passion, that inward desire, that longing was so helpful. But here's what my dad said as we talk. He said, Rod, before I answer and before I kind of release you to do that, there's a question I have to, I have to ask. And this is it. I remember it vividly. Rod, are you willing to have people turn against you as you preach God's word and lead God's church? And the reason he asked that question is because at that point in time, he was a pastor, and guess what? He had a ton of people that were, that were fighting against what he was saying from the pulpit. He understood what it meant to stand in a place when you have to say things for God that are unpopular. And I, I, I mean, it didn't take long for me to answer, but I, I was convinced that God had called me into ministry. And... Um, so I, you know, I pondered the question quickly, but I, I remember saying very boldly and with conviction, Dad, God has called me into ministry, so I'm willing to endure whatever he calls me to do. And friends, I, I am truly thankful for that whole process because that, that conversation and that confirmation of God's calling in my life has been foundational through all sorts of things that I've had to go through as a pastor. Right? Life is full of difficult people. Okay? Now, I want to tell you something. Gateway Bible Church is like no church I have pastored before. We, we have a wonderful group of people, all right? I mean, I mean that. You guys are a fantastic group of people. But I've been in contexts where it hasn't always been that way. And it's been difficult. And you walk around with people saying things about you nearby, and you hear it and all this kind of stuff. But you, you stick to the tasks that you have before you. Why? because that's what God's called you to. That calling is critically important. And so as we go now to 1 Timothy 3.1, I want you to notice what it says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of elder, he desires a noble task. We want to just kind of identify a couple of, of words here, and that would be, first of all, aspires, speaks of a spirit-given compelling desire a desire to reach out for something, a desire to stretch oneself to grasp something. So it's, if you desire, if you aspire the office of an overseer, he says it's a noble task. But then he uses this word desire. He desires a noble task. That, that speaks of an inward passion or compulsion. And friends, there is, there's something in that elder that says, this is what I believe God has for me. This is what he is wanting me to do. There's an inward passion. There's an inward desire. And that desire is noble. It's an honorable ambition. It's a noble task, it says. This is an inward call of God for a demanding honorable work. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This is really important for our understanding of, of how this ambition actually takes place. Pay careful attention to yourselves, it says, and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who makes them overseers? According to that passage, it's the Holy Spirit. So there is this work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a man who's being raised up by the Holy Spirit for that particular office that we call elder, shepherd, overseer. Only God can qualify a man for ministry. And the primary indicator that the Holy Spirit has prepared a man is in his character. And that's why we, we ask the question about the calling, but we also hear, and Paul does it, he says this is, how, this is what you need to look at to determine whether or not the Holy Spirit has been and is raising this person up for this position of elder. John Stott notes the three essentials for a man to be considered as an elder are, and I quote, the call of God, secondly, the inner aspiration and conviction of the man, third, the conscientious screening of that individual by the church with regard to the subsequent character qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It's the same thing that we're doing today. All right? The call, the inner aspirations, and then the affirming that comes from the church that has observed that life based on those qualifications. And so it is to this Holy Spirit call to serve God as an elder shepherd that is the first of three criteria necessary um, as, uh, for an elder to be qualified to serve God in the church. And friends, it is this calling that will be the place that an elder will retreat during difficult times. It is this calling that helps him stand firm in the midst of opposition. So this calling is critically important. This is his conviction. This is his comfort. This is his courage. The calling. Secondly, his character. Now, you probably noticed in your notes, there's a whole bunch of blanks here, right? There's actually 22 criteria. What I did is I took both of these passages, and some of the, some of the same words are used in both passages, came up with 22 criteria um, that are part of this qualification. And then we, we are going to be looking then First of all, generally, and then we're going to look at it specifically um, as it relates to this person's character. And so you're like, man, that's a lot. And how much time do we have? Well, we're going to highlight. I'm going to kind of give you a, kind of a direction of what the, some of these things are. There are a couple that we need to spend a little bit more time on to give further kind of explanation and clarity on because there's confusion. Um, but the first one, and we'll just spend a little bit of time here, is, a, is really a general mechanism or a general tool to help us understand what a elder should look like. It's a general, overarching character quality. This person is above reproach. Depending on your translation, you have uh, either above reproach or probably blameless, right? Now, if you have blameless, understand it doesn't mean blameless. <laughs> All right, that doesn't help, does it? But it doesn't mean that you are totally without sin. We've got to be careful what's being talked about here. Anyone here without sin? Can you think of any person being considered for elder that would be without sin? No. So the word blameless there is talking about a person who is, being, uh, who is above reproach. And the word is a compound that means to be apprehended, that which cannot be laid hold of, or that which is not open to censure. Let me kind of put it this way in asking these questions. Is there anything about this man for which someone could bring an accusation and support it. 
Okay? Now, it's easy for people to bring accusations, right? Well, I don't think what, right? But now the question is, are you able to support it? And is, that, is, your, is what you're using as, as a, a tool or the criteria for support, is it valid? This is an overarching principle or, or overarching qualification that, play, that is placed over all of the qualifications, so to speak. So this above reproach is overarching. It's like the umbrella over all of these qualifications. And so we're going to be asking the questions as we go through here. Is he above reproach in his personal life? Is he above reproach in his social life? Is he above reproach in his family life? Is he above reproach in his ministry life? It does not mean that he needs to be perfect or without sin. To be above reproach is to have no aspect of character where he can characteristically be faulted. And someone has, has used the expression, you know, all right, so I, I throw my accusation against the wall. If it sticks, then it's something I need to pay attention to. In other words, is the accusation going to stick? Is there any substance to it? Okay. So if someone were to bring an accusation against this prospective elder, the accusation would not stick. And this is where we must be careful not to disqualify a candidate on careless grounds, a perception about the man's character, a perceived wrong or slight that you may feel that you have experienced by that person. Even, and maybe even more especially, when the subject of the accusation is more a matter of gossip than evidence and fact. Okay? In the process of considering a prospective elder, we must do all we can to maintain the integrity of both the office of the elder, in other words, what these qualifications are talking about, as well as the character considerations of the prospective elder themselves. In other words, we must not allow a candidate to be totally blindsided by an unfounded accusation. That is not helpful to the body of Christ. We must be very, very careful. So we don't stand up and say, you know, well, I think that so-and-so and such-and-such. No, 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 no. The mechanism that we have in place in our church is if you have a concern about someone's character, whether they qualify in a particular area, your responsibility is to write a letter to your teaching pastor with your name signed explaining what the, the, the concern is, giving the data behind it so that I can then in turn follow back to you and we have a written document so I know who it is and we can deal with it, okay? And that just means that you're part of that process. We want to make sure we're protecting that individual from unwarranted accusation, but we also want to maintain the integrity of the office, okay? Both are absolutely necessary. We need to be careful about how we do that, okay? So this means two things then. Having examined the candidate, there is nothing about his character that causes concern that would stick and thus disqualify him. Secondly, it is evident that he is found able and gifted as an elder. Okay? Remember, we're not talking about perfection here. So that's the general quality, the general characteristic here of being above reproach. Secondly, let's now look at the specific things that are mentioned, and we're going to focus first of all, on his personal life, his personal life, okay? And um, the first three qualifications, sober-minded, self-control, and respectable, can be pictured in the life of King David. And I would like for us to turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 16, 2 Samuel chapter 16. If you remember the story, uh, David didn't go out to war, and as a result of that, he committed sin with Bathsheba, um, he ended up lying and murdering and, you know, creating this whole, this whole kind of conglomeration of sin. 
he's confronted, and uh, Nathan, who's the prophet, confronts him, and as a result, he repents. So this is after all of those incidents, but what happens as a result of David's sin is that David's sons, one in particular, Absalom, rebels, and in 2 Samuel 16, we find the account of Shimei, who's one of the descendants of Saul, hurling abuses and throwing stones and dirt at David as he and his mighty men are traveling away from Jerusalem, fleeing, and they're on their way to the Jordan. Okay? Now, we'll pick it up in verse 13. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposed to him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. Remember, this is the king. And he is with his mighty men. What do you think the mighty men are? Right? They would be the equivalent of the Navy SEALs today, right? I mean, if David said, sick him, they would go and sick him, and it would be done. But here's Shimei walking on a hillside, and it has to be somewhat nearby, right? Because he's throwing stones and throwing dirt. I mean, how far can you throw dirt? All right? I mean, you know, not too far. So you can hear him. You know, the stones are coming down, the dirt's coming. He's throwing all these insults, and what does David do? He doesn't retaliate. At this point in his life, there's something going on with his character that is good, that is healthy. He's sober-minded, all right? He has exercising self-control. He is being respectable. Verse 14, and the king and all the people who are with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. By the way, in that story, his mighty men said, hey, listen, king, let us go after this guy. And he's like, no, no, no. Why should I stop him from speaking? He just didn't react to it. Maybe he's a messenger from God. Okay, so these first three, sober-minded. Let's look at that one first of all. Sober-minded. The word basically means clear-headed. All right, someone who's not intoxicated, someone who is sober. And in the spiritual ethical realm, it it refers to spiritual alertness. This person is clear-headed. They are alert. They're looking around. They're staying on track spiritually. So the evaluation question is this. Is he easily sidetracked from spiritual progress in ministry? Is he careful to not allow anything in his life to distract him from spiritual growth and effectiveness? He's spiritually alert. The next one is self-control. Now, the word conveys the idea of thinking logically and seeing things as they really are. It is objective and not allowing oneself to be excessively self-absorbed. It is the ability to be sensible and objective with the things of life. Does he have a level head? Is he objective in his outlook on life and problems? Or is he subject to excessive moodiness and a tendency to overreact? That's the word that is being used here that is translated self-control. The next one is the word respectable. To be respectable is to be orderly and well-arranged in every facet of life. Now, this is not talking about a perfectionist. It's just, does this person have organization? Do they have systems? Do they, you know, is their life 
well-ordered? Are they just constantly out of control, scatterbrained, confused? It's actually a word that is used to describe a woman's dress. Is it orderly? Okay. So the evaluation questions are these. Is his life well-ordered and arranged, or is there a disarray, a procrastination, a neglect in the day in and day out of the business of life? He's someone that is respectable in that sense. Next one, not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. To be not a drunkard literally means not lingering beside wine. That gives a little different picture, doesn't it? What would it mean to linger beside wine? That you just always have that wine with you. You can't function without that wine. So it refers to a quality of character which is not dependent on or dominated by any external influence. There's no bondage or dependence on anything but Christ. So today, the issue may extend to the control um, of any chemical substance that will diminish the elder's ability to think clearly and to lead with integrity. So it, it could include other things than, I want to say, alcohol. Um, it, could, it could refer to you know, things like drugs. Um, okay? Now, with regard to alcohol, this is not a call to total abstinence, but to a carefulness and moderation. He is not lingering beside wine. It's not constantly there. It's not a constant struggle if that wine isn't there. So the evaluation question is this. Does he find himself dependent on drugs, alcohol, or, or anything else or does he turn to Christ in times of weakness? So the, the idea here, there is this, this is the, the place he goes to find his satisfaction, to find his, his, uh, his rest. This is the, 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 the place he goes when he should be leaning on Christ. Now, one of the things I'm really, really thankful, especially in the ESV, is the, the apostles um, did not say anything about coffee, tea, chocolate, black licorice or cheesecake, okay? Um, and yet we, we, we joke and laugh, but some of those things, you know, I mean, it, food could be one of those things, okay? Um, the more I ponder on that, the more I struggle with this. Um, just the reality is, you know, what, what causes you to, to not turn to Christ? But it's, it's this resting on this alcohol, this wine, that can control and can change and can influence. And we certainly don't want that, right? Now, the next three, not violent, gentle, or not quarrelsome, are in direct opposition to the behavior of the false teachers. So I go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 now in verses 3 through 6 just to remind us of the nature and the activity of these false teachers. 1 Timothy 6 verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So these false teachers were known for quarreling, for dissension, for friction, for craving controversy. But the elder shepherd must not be like them in any way. And that's why we move to the next one. He's not 
violent. A violent person is one who is a bruiser ready for a blow. I mean, bam, they're, they're ready. You, you don't, you know, you, you think that Jesus Christ is coming in 2014. Well, no, he's coming in 2015. Let's go out and fight about it. I mean, it's that kind of silliness. But there are people that can be that way with God's truth. We need to be able to talk about God's truth. We need to be able to dialogue about things. And maybe even we disagree. We don't have to get to the place where we're bruising. This person has a tendency to fly off the handle and strike out at someone. They're easily irritated and have a very short fuse. So the evaluation question is this. Does he have a tendency to lash out at others, either verbally or physically? The elder, then, is gentle. A gentle person is one who is um, equitable, suitable, fair. The idea here is a reasonableness. They're flexible. They yield even when he may not think things are completely right. He's willing to listen. He's yielding out of a sense of fairness when maybe his rights would give him the freedom to stand firm. So there's a reasonableness, there's a willing to to listen and yield here. And so the evaluation question would be, would you say he is, generally speaking, willing to listen with a yielding and fair approach in his dealings with people? He's gentle. So he's not violent, he's gentle, and he's not quarrelsome. And this verb means to fight. And it's used of of armed combatants or those who engage in hand-to-hand struggle. So this person is a contentious person who has an argumentative, quarrelsome attitude, a person who is quarrelsome, okay? He insists on getting the last word in to prove his own supposed superiority. Well, the, the elder needs to run away from that kind of characteristic. Does, here's the evaluation question. Does he tend to be an argumentative, quarrelsome person if things do not go his way? So the, the elder shepherd is known for his gentleness. And that the fruit of that gentleness is fleshed out in the fact that he is a not a violent man, he's not a bully, and he's not quarrelsome. Then, the next one is he's not arrogant. He's not arrogant. This word is a compound consisting of self and please. So this person is a self-pleaser. They're interested in advancing their own interests. He insists on having his own way. He has trouble being supported unless he is in complete agreement with what is going on. He does not convey a teen spirit at all or even a sense of loyalty. And so the evaluation question here is this. Does he insist on and seek his own interests first or the interest of others? He's not arrogant. He's not quick-tempered. A person who is quick-tempered is someone who is prone to anger. And this is a kind of a, an abiding anger and attitude of displeasure and vengeance. So this person quickly holds a grudge. He harbors embittered feelings. And the evaluation question here is this. Does he deal with the feelings or his feelings in a, in a biblical way or does he quickly hold grudges and harbor ill feelings? Next thing, he loves what is good. He finds pleasure and enjoyment in doing good to others as well as using his time and his efforts and his possessions to influence others for good. So the evaluation question would be this. Does he have a tendency to use his resources to bring about 
uh, bring benefit, I should say, and blessing to others, is he a sharing person or does he keep too tight a fist on his resources? He's upright. An upright person is someone who seeks to be right and fair. Just and fair would be maybe a better way to say it. He can be counted on to do the right thing. He's not the kind of person that's going to be partial or show favoritism. Okay? The question here would be then, does he have the tendency to act on based on what God says is right, or are his decisions or actions easily influenced by pressure from men? Next one, he's holy. He's holy. Now, obviously, this does not mean that you know, he is sinless, but he has this attitude that he does not desire to condone or accept evil in any way. He, he literally abstains from every appearance of evil. Not that he abstains from looking and, and having the appearance of evil. The idea of appearance of evil is when, when evil appears, he wants to make sure that he is honoring God with how he handles that appearance of evil. He wants to be holy. He wants to be right in that. He's disciplined. Okay? And the idea of discipline here is having power over him, himself, a strength of character, an inner strength of character. And sometimes it's good to be disciplined just for the sake of being disciplined, right? Just to have that discipline and the, the, the reality of, you know, I can control my body. This person has a habit of being disciplined. The evaluation question would be this. Would you say his general conscious effort is to allow the Holy Spirit to control his speech, impulses, and drives? Now, we've just looked at 13 criteria. You're probably like, oh, man, we've got a whole bunch more to go. I, I understand that, but, you know, there's a need for us to go through these and to ponder them. And I'm going to ask you that even after we're done today, that you do some of your own homework on some of these issues. But these are important. That is just kind of his general personal life. We're going to move now to what I'm calling his social life. And there are three things that are, are, are realities of his social life that we need to look at. As the world looks at him, what do they see? First of all, he's hospitable. He's hospitable. And the idea of the word hospitable means he, he loves strangers. A hospitable person is someone who uses his home to reach out to people in need of love and encouragement. He is welcoming in that sense. So the evaluation question would be, does he tend to extend himself in his home only to his friends, or does he receive new people as well, and that without complaint? He enjoys having people at his home. Maybe people that are completely new. Maybe families that are new to the church. Okay? Not a lover of money. This person is free from the love of money and is content with what he has. So he has a balanced perspective of money. He does not allow the making of money to distract him from his ministry or his walk with God. He knows that true values are eternal not temporal things of this life. So the evaluation question would be this. Would, would those closest to him say he is basically content with what he has, or does money easily sidetrack him from spiritual priorities? And the last one here would be he's well thought of by outsiders. Good comes from the world, um, from, from the word, which means pleasing, beautiful, commendable. He, he is well thought of. He is, he is good in that sense by those that are outside. Others that are looking in see someone who is balanced. Um, there's nothing unethical going on. He's not one character among the church family and then a completely different kind of character in other places. There's a consistency that is 
taking place there. And, and what would his unbelieving acquaintances say about his character? Now, I've known some churches that actually will, will, will go to the workplace and ask that person's boss to evaluate this person's character because they want to know how this person is in the workplace too. Okay. So those are three criteria that are part of the social life. Now, this, this is all important stuff. This is a well-rounded look at a particular individual. His family life. Oh, let's just skip this one, all right? Um, <laughs> oh, man. All right. Husband of one wife. We're just getting into some difficult territory here. That's all. Literally, it says a one-woman man, okay? So there's some confusion here. Um, it doesn't mean a husband of, you know, you know, first wife and that kind of stuff. It, it means a commitment to one woman. He is loyal to her. The, the woman that he is married to, is he committed to her? Is he flirtatious with other women? Uh, or is he happily married and satisfied with his wife? Now, Kent Hughes is helpful here. He says, the literal phrasing seems less concerned with one's marital history and more focused on whether the man being considered for office is perceived as living in honesty, faithfulness, and devotion to his spouse. So any question of divorce or remarriage will need to be taken into consideration by the leadership, remembering that, that the biblical cleansing that comes through forgiveness and grace needs to be weighed in the consideration. Now, what, one of my experiences as pastor in, in a number of churches where I've been is I'm just amazed as to how many people I know who are walking with God, who are godly people, you find out they were once divorced. And many people don't even know it because it was years ago. And so you've got to be careful as you're considering this characteristic. What does that mean? Does it mean never that's a whole other subject. That's a whole other time. But the, the emphasis here is not on whether a person is divorced or not. The emphasis here is that this person is committed to one woman. Now, this is also a clear indicator, along with other things that are going on in these texts, of God's intention for male leadership in the office of elder. Okay? It's the husband of one wife, not spouse. All right? And doesn't say spouse of one spouse it says husband of one wife it's all written in the masculine as well as the qualifications are written in the masculine and the discussions about elders throughout scripture are discussed in the context of uh, masculinity and so the, the weight of responsibility friends for eldership and shepherding and oversight is placed on the shoulders of men in the church so the first one then is the husband of one wife Secondly, a good home manager. And to manage involves the idea of presiding over, governing, superintending. It is a, a watchfulness over the condition of the home in all areas. Now, let's just kind of paint a picture here. Where was the church meeting when Paul is writing this? They weren't meeting in a cathedral, okay? They were meeting in homes, and so the homes were open there for everyone to see. Come to church in our home. And so this person is evidencing a managerial oversight of the home, including parenting and caring for the wife and for maybe even if there are servants there, but also just the support and hospitality. So this encompasses a lot of different things. So this person has the ability to delegate responsibilities 
to family and to those who are part of that family circle there, and even decision-making. Um, if he has children, it means that he is, uh, he is disciplining and instructing those children with dignity, not humiliating them or causing them to be embittered. All right? So the question here is this. Does he manage his household affairs in a commendable way, or is there chaos and disorder in the house? The last one here, children under control. Children who are under control are children who have a, a, a respect for authority and demonstrate it through a basically obedient attitude. Anyone here ever have a child that was totally and thoroughly obedient? If you have, talk to me. We might have a book deal. No, no one will want to read that, trust me. Um, and, I, and this, is, this is one of the qualifications, honestly, that causes any elder or prospective elder to shake in their boots. Because you can pour yourself into your children. And you can, you can, do, I mean, you can do all the right things, but there is still a will in that child, right? And that child can go through times of, of wandering and struggle, and parenting is not always simple. There will be times of trouble, and there will be times when, as a parent, you have to stand firm for God and represent God in your parenting for the benefit of that child. And it may appear really ugly to those that are on the outside, but that parent knows, I am doing what God is calling me to do, and I'm in the battle, and I'm fighting for God, and I'm fighting for my child. Now, what this passage is talking about is an overarching an overarching. Um, faithfulness on the part of those children. Um, sorry, the, on the part of that parent to represent God in the context of being a parent. Titus 1.6 helps us a little bit more. It says, and his children are believers and not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now there's three things from that passage that we need to understand as we, just, as we think about the Greek language, and I realize you're going to have to trust me on this. You can do your own homework. But it's talking here about children, first of all, that are in the home. This is not talking about children who are independently outside of the home. Secondly, the word for children is plural. <coughs> Excuse me. And if it's plural, the point here is this. We need to be careful we're not singling out one child when there's a whole bunch of others that reveal that there is actually a consistency going on in the home. But there's one child who is struggling. Okay, now if we're coming at these criteria with a critical attitude, what do we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency to look at that one problem rather than looking at the whole. And I'm not saying that one child isn't something to consider, but then the question is, what is happening with the, with the family as a whole? Finally, we need to consider that if, there, if these children are believers, because that's what it says there, these children are believers. And the, 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 my understanding as I've studied this is that the word believers is not necessarily saying that those children all are converted. Let me explain that. Anyone here have a two-year-old? And you are getting ready to maybe, you know, become an elder. But you have a two-year-old. Is that two-year-old converted? Can that two-year-old be converted, I guess is the question, right? In our, in our thinking, all right? Now, so, so there, there's, there's an issue here, not only with the idea of they must be. That means that anyone who's having children must step out of eldership until those children reach an age where they can believe. You see what I'm saying? We have a problem. 
And the idea of this word then is, are these children faithful? The, uh, the same, from the same word, pistuo, believers, are they faithful? In other words, by our observation over time, we can see that these children are growing in their maturity based on their, their age and based on the criteria that is there. We're not fixated with one issue or problem from their youthful experience. Listen, my, my children, um, are, I love them. My son Adam's the only one that's here. Um, but I'll, I'll say this publicly, um, they're all knuckleheads. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. Our children do dumb things. And as a dad, I'm just like, you're an idiot. Now, I know you should never say that, right? <laughs> but you understand what I mean. It's just like, why, why? And my point here is to say this, that my children are just like anyone else's children. There's no special pastoral elder DNA that my children have they're struggling, they're growing, they're going to fail, they're going to make mistakes. And, and the thing is, there's a big picture here. And this is where a, a loving community will recognize elders and pastors who have children who may have special struggles being the sons or daughters of elders because there is this unwritten expectation. And yet at the same time, there's an encouragement when those child may, you know, they fall into the ditch and they need to get picked out. And, and rather than pointing fingers, they come alongside and help. My, my point here is, 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 this, is this a normative thing? Is this happening with all the children? Or is this something that is kind of, you know, this happens every once in a while, but how are those parents handling that child when they do fall into the ditch, right? Is that child then ultimately faithful? Are they desiring to submit to, to authority? Are they desiring to grow? Now, Kent Hughes, again, has been a big help um, on, on Titus 1.6. Here's what he says. Paul's testimony is not so much requiring us to examine a child's professed testimony as to evaluate whether the child, in a manner appropriate for his age, is exhibiting evidence of consistent biblical discipline and spiritual nurture. We should all recognize that there are periods of life when raising children is more difficult and when beliefs of parents are naturally questioned. By encouraging us to examine the faithfulness of all potential leaders' children, the apostle is charging us to take stock of the home as a whole. And so the evaluation question is this, do, does his children, do his children show respect for authority, not only his, but others as well? And that is that something that has taken place in, in, as you look at the whole family. And friends, I would just plead with you, uh, for, for me and for those who are being considered as elders, pray, pray, pray. If, if Satan wants to come in and to harm Gateway Bible Church, what's one of the, the best ways that he can do that? It could be to, to get in the middle of the marriages and to get in the middle of those parenting issues, okay? And uh, we, we need encouragement and support from one another there. So we've looked then at, at the, the family issues. Um, let's also look now at, at the, the ministry life. Uh, he's not a new convert. Uh, makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, he's not a novice. He's not going to have the capacity to understand what is really, really important. And what happens is sometimes there can be a new convert who in, a, in the process of a year can have this incredible knowledge and grow real fast and this zeal, and it's attracting. You're like, oh, man, maybe this person would work, but they don't have the capacity for leadership because they just, they, they're not mature enough yet in the Lord. Okay, so not a, not a new convert, not a novice. Um, able to teach is the next one. Able to teach. Now, able to teach is the capacity to communicate the Word of God. Now, there's some confusion as to what this is talking about. Let me just clarify. This is not saying that a person who is apt, able to teach 
has the ability to stand up on a Sunday morning and to preach. Or maybe even to stand up before a group of people and to teach a Sunday school class. What this is talking about is this person ultimately has the ability to handle the word of God God faithfully and can explain and defend the faith. So he has the ability to communicate his handling of the word of God in a clear and understandable way. And it goes along with the next one that we're going to see there, and that would be... um, Come on. Oh, boy. So much for technology, huh? There we go. All right? Um, Able to teach, and then he holds fast the faithful word, right? And again, the holding fast the faithful word involves a sound knowledge and understanding of the doctrine of Scripture. So he has this personal conviction of the significance of the truth of Scripture, and that is evidenced by the fact that he is able to clearly and effectively... um, Oppose error with Scripture. And then the last one here, as far as that is concerned. Oh, man. I don't know what's going on here. All right. That was the last one? Yeah. But I'm... I have never had this happen to me before. All right, so the last thing here then is his confirmation. This is really important. This is kind of like saying, okay, we've looked at the, his character, but now as a church family and, and as a leadership, these are the two criteria here, um, we need to look at this person's character. We need to look at this package of this, this individual. So we go back and we ask ourselves the question, is there evidence that this person has been called by God to be in this capacity of elder? Okay. And so you're going to look for some things here. The church leadership is going to be looking at the church family saying, you know, is there a development of Christ-like character in this individual? Is there evidence by, by their, their eagerness to be involved in the things of the church? Is there this inner desire with a spiritual drive? And they're going to evaluate to see if those things are true. Okay? And then secondly, there's going to be a responsibility on the part of the church congregation then to ask some questions too. And the church congregation is going to then be, uh, be made aware of the church's leadership and their recognition of a particular individual or individuals who they believe um, rise as far as meeting the qualifications. But now the church family is going to have to look and to consider whether or not what they're saying is true. So they are presented as candidates. Secondly, the congregation prayerfully observes those candidates, and they, they're kind of observing these characteristics and these qualities, asking themselves the question, you know, is there anything that sticks, or is this person qualified? All right, and then those, those concerns are, are then written down, if there are concerns, they're written down, and they're communicated to the leadership that's already established in the church, and that leadership then has to wrestle with what is the concern, do the homework, Go back to those people who have written it out so that, so that there can be a proper dialogue. Is there evidence? Is there proof? Is this perception? Is this gossip? What is going on here? You know, is, is this actually what is taking place? There actually may need to be um, more discussions with other people depending on what the issue is. And having done all that, uh, when that time of concern has been exhausted, there needs to be a time when the church then unites together for the purpose then of joyfully um, bringing these men, these candidates, into the role as 
elder. Okay? Now, I'm just briefly giving you that process. Next week, I'll have a document put together um, that will actually list each of these qualifications with some of these questions that would help you evaluate each one, um, as well as the process that we're going to go through. Now, just a couple of things just in closing. Um, what we're going to be doing just to help you um, as a church, and, and you guys know who the, the prospective elders are, um, um, Albert Castaneda, Matt Dodson, and Ed Bessard. From our perspective, what we want to be able to do is to make sure that you had an opportunity to meet these guys, to hear from them. Now, the reality is, about 22 months ago now, we presented them to you and said, this is the process, they're prospective elders, we want you to look at their life, you want to sit under their, their ministry and all that kind of stuff, but now we're going to kind of bring it more to a formal close, and in that, what we want to do is, three Sundays in um, November, we want to give you an opportunity to interact with them before church. We're trying to work with our system as best we can. So before church at 9.30, for three Sundays in a row, um, each individual is going to have one Sunday. They're going to come. They're going to share their testimony. I'm going to prepare some questions that they are going to answer, and there may even be some time for some Q&A by those people. That's the first thing we're going to do. second thing we're going to do is not tonight, but the next two home groups that we have we're going to have those guys rotate the home groups so that they can sit in with the home groups. And the, the point is not to simply change the home group just to be a Q&A time. It's for them to actually be a part of that home group, to lead that home group, and to discuss the things that are there, but also during that informal time to be able to be an opportunity for you to get to know them. So we're just trying to build in some places where that can be the case. Now, if you do have a concern, if you do have some questions, if you do have something that needs to be brought to, uh, to my attention, the process is to write it down, um, give the specifics, make sure your name is signed there, and then submit it to me, and I will communicate with you having received that. We're going through this process carefully because we want to do it properly. Everyone understand that? And I realize you might say, you know, I can't, well, I can't wait until we can get back into a book. I understand that. But church leadership has been taken so lightly in so many contexts we want to be careful that we are doing it properly, effectively, and carefully for the glory of God. Because the strength of our leadership will also affect the strength of our church. And so friends, we don't want to take this lightly. We want to take it, we want to take it with high priority and do this for the glory of God. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer. We'll sing a song and we will let you go. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity of being here today. Uh, Lord, these, these subjects are weighty. They're weighty, Lord, because this is your church. Um, and Lord, sometimes we just feel like this is kind of a, a, a hoop that we need to kind of go through rather than a joy that we need to be a part of. And Lord, we need to be thankful that you have already been at work in our church raising men. And there are others, Lord, that are, that are beginning to, to kind of catch the, the, the vision of what you're doing in their lives. And Lord, I ask you would help us to continue to be mindful of, of men who are, who are feeling and, and believing the call to serve the church in this way. So Lord, help us to be wise, help us to be diligent, help us to be knowledgeable, and Lord, help us to be um, joyful, Lord, as we go through this process. And Lord, would you be glorified in all that is done, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.